Well, thanks, Natalie. Good morning. Welcome to Auckland AV. I'm Rowan, one of the pastors here, and I love Easter Sunday. It's just a great day to be able to celebrate what historically has happened, uh, the reality that Jesus rose from the dead, the event that changed the face of the world. And as we get to this passage this morning, there's going to be uh, some things to think through around what resurrection means and what life is about that are fairly deep and will cause us to think a bit and use our grey matter. So why don't we pray and ask God to help us as we think through what he's got to say in his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this day that we can celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. We thank you for the joy that it is to know that there is life after death. And we pray that as we look into your word today, as we understand the events around Lazarus and Jesus and who he is and what he's done, we ask that by your spirit, you'd help us to see what you see. And help us to see the world from your point of view today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, a few months ago, uh, our insurance company uh, rang up and uh, was kind of redoing our insurance, as they do. And they asked me on the phone if we were happy with the insured value of our contents. And I was kind of like, no, can you make our contents be worth more? Like, that'd be great. Um, I think what they were meaning at, were you happy with the amount you'd had insured for our contents? And it got me thinking, how do you value your stuff? Like if our house were to burn down, how, how would you go through and value all the things that are there? My head started cataloging the things that were there, like our fridge. I'm not very emotionally attached to our fridge. I don't know if you are, but I'm, I'm fine. Look, just replace the fridge. It's not a problem at all. But there's other things like, like our couches. We bought those secondhand. We didn't pay much for them. So I'm like, oh, they're not worth that much. But then if we had to replace them, well, it cost a heap. And so then we're like, well, that's going to have to put a bit down there. And then there's other items that have sentimental value. I want to show you one. Items like this. This is the only trophy I moved from my parents' shrine to Rowan that they had uh, at home to New Zealand. And really, it's the only trophy that I really care about. It was about 1988 exactly. I was in primary school, and they had this award for the, for the juvenile boy champion. And every year, a guy in our year called Daniel Ambrose would win. The guy was a machine. He, he lived uh, on a deer farm and used to race deer. I, mean, I don't know, that's how he practiced. He was incredibly fast, and he was hands like well in front of everyone. And it came time to give the award, the annual kind of ceremony at the end of primary school, and they announced the juvenile boy champion for 1988 as me, Rowan Hilsden. And I'm like, what? Now, to this day, I still think it was for most improved, not, not the best, and it's not very hard to go from zero to a little bit more. It's a great improvement that you make. But I was like, this was the, this was the time that it kind of upset the year, and I love it. I'm like, this is great. I was the juvenile boy, boy champion once. So there you go. How do you put a value on that trophy? Quite easily. You know, it's probably cost 10 bucks. Like, and maybe the engraving, another five, $15, and we could replace it. That'd be fine. But there's a sense where there's no way in the world I'd want to just go, yeah, okay. If someone came to me and said, they'll give you $20 for it, I'd be like, no. You, you, no way. If someone said, I'll give you $200 for it, I'd still be like, no, that's so valuable. That kind of was that moment that Daniel Ambrose lost and I won. <laughs> it's a symbol of, of how great that is. Uh, and if someone said to me, what about if I give you $2,000 for it? The sense I'd be like, oh, I can still remember the moment maybe. But if someone came up and said, I'll give you 20 grand, I'd be like, done, I'm in. <laughs> 20 grand, totally. But apparently that's not how insurance works. Uh, that's how compensation works. The question I want us to reflect on this morning is, how much is your life worth? How much is your life 
worth? Is it merely the sum of your possessions or is it more? Is there something intrinsically valuable about human life? See, I think across the world we recognize that there is something incredibly valuable about human life. In 2010, the Chilean government spent $32 million rescuing 33 miners from a collapsed mine. That's almost a million dollars each they paid to save the souls of these people. And they did, praise God. No matter what your background is, no matter what your culture or country, every kind of nation places incredibly high value on human life. As we get to this passage that we read this morning, that Natalie just read for us, we meet a family in grief at the loss of life. And we see a number of surprises throughout this passage. Have a look with me. John 11, chapter 1. It's on the screen. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were family friends of Jesus. Uh, they knew one another well. Uh, they'd seen the miracles of Jesus. They'd seen him um, heal the sick and give sight to the blind. They'd heard his teaching. They loved Jesus. There was relationship together. And so they send this message to Jesus, letting him know that the one that he loved, Lazarus, his, his family friend, was sick. If anyone could stop this sickness, if anyone could heal him, if anyone valued Lazarus's life, surely it would be Jesus. Now, if you were Jesus, which is always scary to ask, but if, if you were, and you heard the message that your friend was dying, and you had the power to stop him from death, and to save his family from the grief of death, would you? That seems the loving thing to do, right? Why wouldn't you? And the things that surprise us in this passage, the first is exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. We heard this right. He, he did nothing. His friend is dying, and Jesus says, let's hang out a bit more where we are. Now, at first reading, when you get to these, I've got to be honest, it feels pretty callous, doesn't it? You've got that power to heal your friend, your friends with them. Why on earth would you stay two more days? Doesn't Jesus value life? In John chapter 4, he'd healed an official's son who he didn't even know from like 25 kilometers away. He'd said, yep, the guy's healed. The official went back and he was. The Chilean government spent $32 million just to rescue 33 people. All Jesus had to do was to say the word be healed, but he doesn't. And you've got to ask, why? Why wouldn't he do this? Look carefully at the way John writes. It's on the screen again. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Do you see the start of verse 6? So, Jesus stayed two more days because he loved Lazarus. He was staying in an act of love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. You're like, how does that make sense? Like, how do you love someone by letting them die? I don't get it. I don't understand. What could be more important than prolonging Lazarus's life? What could be more loving than saving his family from the grief of death? Now, understanding the answer to that question is, I think, 
the key to understanding Easter. And the most important thing you could ever know. The fact that Jesus loved Lazarus by waiting can only mean that there was something more loving for Jesus to do than to save Lazarus from death. There was something more valuable for Martha and Mary and Lazarus to know than going through the grief of death itself. And that's a lot. This is so countercultural. It's just not the way that we think. But whatever you find yourself that, and you're thinking at odds with the way God thinks, it's worth stepping back and thinking, do I see the world rightly? Does God see something here that I don't see? Is there a view of what is going on that I haven't quite understood? What is the God of the universe trying to help me understand? Well, after two days, Jesus then decides to go and see Lazarus. At this point, the disciples that are following him try and convince him not to go. They're like, if he's fallen asleep, what's the point? He'll wake up again. Jesus is like, no, 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 he's not. And they're worried about what will happen. At the end of last chapter, uh, people had picked up rocks and stones to kill Jesus and they kind of walked away. They hadn't got him. And the disciples are like, don't go back. You're going to get smashed. They're going to kill you. But Jesus doesn't seem to be scared by the threat of death. It's like death notes holds no power on him. And then we get the second surprise in the passage. John eleven fourteen. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. The moment you thought wouldn't happen, if you're reading through this for the first time, the moment you thought wouldn't happen because Jesus was on the way, he's decided to come, happens. And, and you hear those words, Lazarus has died. Now, all of us have heard those words at some point in our lives. Surely not about Lazarus, but about others that we have loved. And they have a massive effect on us. This person has died. This one that you love, that you know, has died. We've all heard it. And depending on the, on the closeness of that person to us, we've felt the incredible pain and anguish that comes with death. Death is horrible. Death sends shivers down our spine. Death raises that gut-wrenching anguish in our stomachs. Death is the very opposite of everything that we're trying to do in life. Death sucks. But as a society, when we approach the issue of death, we generally do one of two things. Either we deny it, we try and push it aside, don't talk about it, live in denial, death isn't going to happen, I'm not going to think about it, it might, but I just want to push it out of the way, I'll just kind of go on with life, kind of pretending it's not there with my my fingers in my ears. We deny it, or... We sentimentalize it. Psychologists have rightly been telling us for a number of years that if you deny something that you fear, if you fear something and refuse to face it, what actually happens is that thing controls you unconsciously. If you're afraid of something that you refuse to face, it kind of still runs your life. It's still there under the surface, kind of changing the way we think and act and what we do. The sentimentalizing approach says, well, let's not be afraid of death. Let's not fear death, but let's kind of face it and say it's our friend. Let's talk about death as kind of a natural thing. It's just part of the circle of life. It's not an awful thing. It's, it's kind of, a, a, in its own way, a beautiful thing. It's a peaceful thing. It's, it's just a, the final stage of life. problem is, as soon as you're faced with death itself, with the death of a loved one, you know that is an outright lie. You know How horrific and hurtful and horrible and gut-wrenching the feel is of approaching death for yourself or for others. 
Pretending death is beautiful in the natural stage of life works just about as well as putting lipstick and eyeliner on a skeleton. Right? It just makes the whole thing more hideous. Friends, the Bible says death is an enemy. And that rings true with how we feel, doesn't it? Paul says it's the last enemy. It is not our friend. So when you hear the words of Jesus, Lazarus has died, your heart kind of sinks. This is his friend. This is Mary and Martha's brother. He's dead. That's it. Another victory for the enemy. And there's a sense where you should be angry and frustrated for death is horrific. But what's surprising again here is Jesus' response to that statement. Everyone's wishing that Jesus would go there and stop what had happened, that he had sent there. But look what happens in verse 15. Jesus says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so you may believe. You're still like, what? I don't get this. Why did this guy not go and save this guy from death? Literally, the word Jesus uses there where it says, I'm glad in verse 15 is, I rejoice. That's what it says. Jesus only uses the word rejoice a few times in the scriptures, and they're all generally about something happy. I rejoice that I wasn't there to heal him. I rejoice that Lazarus is now dead. Oh, there's something that grates hugely about saying that, isn't there? Something that makes you go, why would Jesus do this? That's exactly the question Jesus gets asked in this narrative. Three times by Mary, then Martha, then the Jews. Firstly, by Martha, 20 to 22. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Imagine that. Imagine seeing the one who could have healed your brother and he's come now, but he took too long and you're just going, if you had been here, I've seen you heal the sick. I've seen you give sight to the blind. I know who you are. Why didn't you come? Mary, verse 32. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. Even the bystanders, the people standing around when they're they're seeing this commotion go on in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Why, Jesus? Why? Why didn't you come? Why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you stop this evil going on? Don't you love Lazarus enough? Why have you let this go on? So many people in this world walk away from Jesus because they can't understand why he would let some atrocity of life happen. Whether it's some debilitating sickness on themselves or another, the death of a loved one, natural disaster, the result of human evil, It seems plain to us that the most important thing would be for all of these evils to have not occurred. And if Jesus could have stopped them but didn't, he mustn't love us or he mustn't be good. I've seen so many people say that. Why, Jesus? And that's exactly the question John raises as he tells us this story. And then we reach the third surprise. Jesus' response. All these questions seem... Fair questions for Martha, for Mary, for the bystander, for us. But listen to how Jesus responds to these questions of why he didn't do it. Verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. 
and verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again. Two times, John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved. Problem is, that's not what the word means. Jesus wasn't just like, oh, you know, I moved, I'm a bit sorry, or I was a bit late, or I had something to do. It wasn't kind of like, oh, no, I've, I've done something wrong. The word there, deeply moved, means outraged. It's used of a horse at times when it flares its nostrils at any kind of anger. It's, 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 it's an absolute anger and outrage at what is going on. Why is Jesus angered? Why is he so outraged at this point? I mean, he certainly loved Jesus. We, we hear in verse 35 when he approached the tomb where Lazarus was laid dead that, that he wept. I, I don't think that it's merely Lazarus' death or, or the loss of a friend that has him outraged. You get a sense here that as Jesus looks death in the eye, he's not happy. He is angry with death itself. John started the, the book of uh, the Gospel of John with these words In the beginning was the Word. The word was with God and the word was God. We see this picture that, that Jesus is the word and he was there in the beginning of the world. And when Jesus created the world, he did not create his people to experience such pain and suffering and torment. Although he did create us knowing that we would bring that on ourselves. He created us with a solution to the problem of death. And suffering and pain. Since the beginning of the world, since the creation of all things, he has been longing to show the solution to the problem of suffering and pain and death. He's been waiting patiently for the right time to look down the barrel of death and say, You are finished. You are over. Make no mistake, Jesus hates death just as much as he hates the sin that causes it. But I think there's also a sense here in which he's outraged that people could think he, the creator of the world, the one who has come to lay down his life for them, that they could think that he doesn't love them, that he has not loved them, that he's in some ways not acting appropriately. They're questioning his motive. There's a sense of outrage against that. Mary, Martha, the crowd, they think he hasn't done enough. But if they knew that since the beginning of the world, there had been a plan for the end of death, Jesus begins to unveil that plan right here and right now. In verse 23, to Martha's question of why he wasn't there sooner, listen to Jesus' answer, verse 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again at the resurrection in the last day. Now, what she's saying here is really just the plain teaching of what every Jew believed. That as you lived, you would die, but then on the last day, God would send his promised king and he would then raise everyone to, to, to life, to eternal judgment or eternal life. That was the view of, that every Jew had, that everyone would rise, that death was not the end. And it's really important to understand this. See, if all that happens to us in life is that we're born, we live and we die, I want to put it to you that our actions in life are just meaningless. If all that happens is that we live and then we die, then that's it. If, if, if all I do ends in nothing, then why does it matter what I do? If there's no one to value it. Sure, my actions might be valued by others, but they'll die too. What's the purpose of what I've done and all this energy I'm putting into life here and now? We intrinsically know that life is valuable, but who gives it its value? Who is the judge of what each life is worth? 
If something is only worth as much as someone else values it as, who is the ultimate valuer of life? See, if death is the end and there is no judge or no judgment, no judgment in our life and actions, then life is effectively meaningless. You live, you die, that's it. There's no meaning to it, no purpose. Truth and justice and beauty and integrity, every value you want to have is meaningless. If they are not judged, if there is no judgment, if, if death is the end. But if there is a resurrection, as the Jews believed and as Christians believe, if all people will rise and come before a judge who will judge people's actions, then life becomes meaningful. What we do on earth matters. It has lasting value because death is not the end. What I do here on earth does matter because it is judged by God and will affect eternity for you and for me. Even more than that, if there is a resurrection where everyone's deeds are judged, then justice will finally be given. How often do you feel like some person does something, creates some evil and pulls people to do some horrible thing and they get away with it? They die. It wasn't enough. They don't face the punishment they ought to see. Well, the resurrection says there is justice for those killed at the Holocaust. There is justice for those killed in the Christchurch massacre. There is justice for those of us that have been the recipients of evil and hate. And we can rest knowing that God's justice will prevail. That there is, a, there is a, one we can trust in who will bring about his judgments. No one will get away with it because God will judge. Because all will rise and face the true and living God. The writer of the Hebrews says in 9.27, Man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. That was the plain understanding of the Jews. That's what Martha believed, that all will rise, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting judgment. That's why human life has value, because death is not the end. So Martha believes that Lazarus will rise on that last day, that day when God brings his final judgment in and the whole earth is judged. When God sends his promised king to judge the world, she says, yes, I know he will rise at that day, as will all others. But Jesus is outraged. He's outraged because they don't yet see who he is. He's outraged at death, at people questioning his motives, because since the beginning of the world, he's been waiting for the right moment to say this. And it's surprise number four, verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus is saying, the resurrection is here. The general resurrection is here. It has begun with me. God's judgment is here. God's judge is here. God's life is here and his name is me. It doesn't say, I can bring about the resurrection. Jesus doesn't say, I can make a resurrection happen. He doesn't say, I'm so powerful, I can raise people to life. He says, I am the resurrection. The time has come. You believe that there is a great and glorious day of resurrection coming at the end of the age when all believers will be raised bodily from the grave, and you're right. And surprise, I am that day. You knew that Messiah would come. I am the Messiah. That day has come. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he replies to her, Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe it? I'm here. I love you. 
I have come to right the wrong. I have come to judge the earth. I have come to give life, life that does not end. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Outraged at death. Outraged at its reign over all creation. Infuriated with the loss death brings and the sin that causes it. Jesus, at this point, walks forward to the tomb of Lazarus, who's been in there for four days. He walks forward to the tomb as the one who is the resurrection and the life, displaying a preview of what he's about to bring about. Verse 39, remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The whole purpose of Jesus allowing Lazarus' death The entire point of loving Martha and Mary and Lazarus by allowing them to experience the pains of death is about to be made spellbindingly clear. It's got nothing to do with them and everything to do with who Jesus is. Look at verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I say this, so they may believe you sent me. And after this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And thank God that he used Lazarus' name. For if he had not, every grave in all Jerusalem would have sped up its dead because the resurrection and the life had come. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. It's It's astounding. A dead man obeyed the word of God. We need to remember that's what happens every time. God brings someone to himself. God calls you to himself. He reveals who Jesus is. He causes you to see God's glory. That Jesus is the resurrection and the life and believe. He calls us who are dead to be alive if we recognize who Jesus is. The moment Lazarus walked out of the room, what do you think was going on in Lazarus' head? Why didn't you come earlier? I can't believe you let me die. What do you think Mary and Martha and the Jewish crowd were thinking? Does Jesus really love him? Does he really care for us? Of course they didn't. They were face to face with the glory of the resurrection and the life. The resurrection and the life had come to bring relationship that would last forever for those who believed in him. They were amazed at Jesus That day they saw that life begins with Jesus. Life that lasts forever, for he really is the resurrection and the life. What's clear from the words and actions of Jesus is, and it's hard to hear, but it's true, there is something more valuable, more important, more essential for you and me to understand than avoiding all the grief and loss in life, and even more important than avoiding death itself. And it's this. Recognizing the glory of Jesus. Recognizing that he is the resurrection and the life. For when you see that, you see him and you see life that does not end. Jesus looks down the barrel of death and says, Be gone. Do you know who I am? Don't measure how much God loves you by how much wealth and comfort and prosperity he brings to your life. Measure God's love for you by marveling at Jesus as the resurrection and the life. 
For when you see the glory of Jesus, death is but a small sleep like it was for Lazarus. And life, eternal life, life without end, is ours if you trust what he is offering you. That is the joy of Easter. That is the joy of the resurrection of Jesus, where we get to experience more and more and more of our love of God in Christ Jesus. We get to see who he is and understand him more and recognize that that relationship will go on forever when he comes back and raises us all and judges the earth. Between the death of Lazarus and his resuscitation four days later, the family and friends, they, they couldn't see how God would be glorified in it. And friends, so often that's where we sit today, isn't it? All of us do, in some sense, sit with that tension between, God, why are you doing this? Why is this going on? Why are you allowing this to happen? But friends, be very, very, very clearly seen here. We think why until we see the resurrection. And as Jesus comes back and brings life from the death, It all makes sense to go, God is doing far more than you can imagine. He's bringing you to an age that will last forever in a new heaven and a new earth. I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds out of this world. But friends, Jesus rose. History records it. Why do I believe the Bible on this? Why do I come along and say I'm convinced that Jesus is who the Bible says he is? Because I look at the history of humanity and there's this resurrection-shaped dent. Why couldn't they find the body? Why did people in that age say, yes, I've seen him risen from the dead? Jesus rose. That's what we celebrate today. One of the main reasons I believe that this is true is on this video right here. Have a quick look. So I want to show you right now one of the best sites uh, in all of Israel. Uh, The site is really quite important. I'm walking down these stairs here to a wall. I don't know if you can see it behind me. And there behind me is a tomb that they believe uh, belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. If you come with me down here now, I want to show you a site that is actually quite amazing uh, in these doors. Uh, I won't speak in there, but have a look. Well, here I am. And what I want to show you is nothing. There's no body, there's no bones, there's nothing left, because this is likely the tomb of Jesus. And uh, on that morning, on uh, Easter Sunday, the stone was rolled away and he walked out because he's risen from the dead. One of the best evidences for Christianity and for the resurrection is that there's no body. So I wanna show you right now one of the best sites uh, in all of Israel. Uh, the site is really quite important. We could watch it again. Who wants to do that? Sorry, I said I wasn't going to talk, and then there was no one in there, so I'm like, I'm going to talk. But seriously, there is no body. Paul records in, in 1 Corinthians 15, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to scriptures. And then hear this, right? He's drawing a historical line in the sand. He appeared to Peter, okay, to this guy, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, when he was writing this, he's saying, go ask them. It's not like this happened 40, 50 years later, he's saying, oh, this guy called Jesus really rose from the dead. Living memory, people were alive, they'd seen him, and you, at the point Paul wrote this, could say, 
He said to them, go and ask them, go find them, talk to them. They saw him risen from the dead, and they died for the fact that he rose from the dead. They were happy to say to the Roman emperor, no, you can kill me. I will not recant the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And Christianity sprung so quickly and spread across the world so that we at the end of the earth still today celebrate and get a public holiday tomorrow because Jesus rose from the dead. History records that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that what he said to Martha was not only proved by his resuscitation of Lazarus from the dead, but by himself rising as the first fruit of what will happen when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. How should we respond to the love and the glory of Jesus? Entrust your future to him. For that is where true value is found. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. To say, look, I think you are God the Son. I think what you say is true, that you are the one who has died for me, the one who has risen again. Put your life in his hands. Don't stand on that last day facing the judgment that will happen when all rise and say, I think I don't need him. I don't need his death in my place. I think I can face God on my own. Friends, see what Jesus has done. He died for you. He is risen, bringing life. Recognize he is the resurrection and the life. What does that look like? Well, it'll change the way you live. It'll allow you to say, rather than going, oh, why did he let this happen? Why did he let them die? To be able to go, although it hurts, although I can't yet see why, I'm going to take you at your word that you work for your good. And I'm going to let you love me by showing you more of me. And how many of us can testify that as we've gone through hardships, as we've been through life's ups and downs, God has carried us to fix our eyes more on him and be made more like him so that when he comes back, oh, how we long for that day. For on that day, if you trust in Jesus, you'll be able to stand and say, no matter what the cost, Jesus, glorify your name. Jesus, work in this situation so people can see how great you are. For as we look to the glory of Jesus, what do we see? He is the resurrection and the life. He's the one who comes to judge and gives value to life. He's the one to whom all humanity will bow the knee. That's the reality of the resurrection. And he is the life. He's the one who offers eternal life. The one for whom death has no power over. The one who has given himself to death for us so that we might have a life that does not end. Friends, today we need to see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. His love for us is better than life itself. Your value is found in coming to him. And I promise, as Jesus said, that if you put your life in his hands, you will see the glory of God. You will be raised from the dead. And you will have life that does not end with no more mourning or crying or pain on the day Jesus comes back and puts things right. Friends, Jesus rose from the dead. How great is that? Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you've not left us on our own. That although we we don't always live the way we ought, that we don't treat you the way we should, that you've loved us so much as to give your son to die in our place. We thank you that Jesus came as the resurrection and the life. That he is the one who has power over death. That has looked down the barrel of death and said, you were finished. We thank you for the hope, the certain hope that comes from trusting in you. And this day, Lord, we ask... You would reveal yourself to us. You would keep showing us more and more of who you are. You would help us 
to come to you who is the life and trust you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.